Where are we going? Welcome to this exclusive podcast produced by Spirit Watch Ministries that will show where life in our darkening times is now turning and how you can avoid the detours of deception through the hope of biblical truth. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 warned us over two millennia ago and how urgently we need to heed him now. Our host is Pastor Rafael Martinez, a seasoned Northwest Indiana-based minister, intercessor, and counter-cult apologist who will help you discern the journey of change we're all on as the last day of the last days now winds down. For more information, check out our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. Now. Here's Pastor Raphael. Thanks for downloading our podcast today. We do appreciate your stopping by. Uh, this is our podcast entitled, Where Are We Going? I'm Raphael Martinez, a minister in the Church of God Cleveland Movement, and I'm so glad you took the time to stop by and listen in. This podcast is one of the services of Spirit Watch Ministries, an outreach of discernment in our deceptive world that has been ongoing since 1993. You can learn more about us at our website, spiritwatch.org, and keep up to date using our Facebook and YouTube links there on the page as well. We also have a companion blog called Spirit Watch Unchained, which you can also dig up by Google search. Today, we're going to make room for the longest podcast we've had yet, in which we will be bringing to you a talk delivered by the late but great Dr. Walter Martin, one of the 20th century's most influential defenders of the Christian faith. This talk was given during a chapel at Lee College, the Church of God institution I attended from 1986 through 1991 in preparation for Christian ministry. Dr. Martin was a man who I counted as a mentor from afar off as a young disciple in the 1980s, and his example and fearless quest for discernment left a profound impression on me that I lean on hard to this day. Now, while doing renovations at the Lee campus, I literally stumbled across the original reel-to-reel tapes that Dr. Martin's recordings were made on in an old box. I was blown away that the record of his talk even existed. I was able to use Lee's media holdings to create a cassette tape of the talk, and from there, the MP3 file I converted the audio to, which you're now about to hear. What you now will hear for the next 55 minutes or so will be the absolutely unforgettable exhortation of Dr. Martin on what he called the rise of the cults. He faithfully and unflinchingly declares in his own way what the Bible says about the nature of cultic deception, beginning with his own exposition of Matthew 24. May you be challenged and blessed by this talk, which is also found on our website for download as well. So sit back in your time machine. It's 1979. Disco was dying even as the Sugar Hill Gang released the first rap song to make it to the top 40. The Sony Walkman had just been created and released. Three Mile Island's nuclear disaster was clearing its throat, and the rise of radical Islam was about to start in Iran during the U.S. hostage crisis. But as dated as all that is, the timeless truths of Scripture Dr. Martin will share here begin with his equally eternal reflection of the kinds of students there are in the world. Now you said, how many of them are there, Dr. Martin? There are two types of students. I always tell my students this. There are the sieve heads and the sponge heads. The sieve head gets so carried away with the moment that they're just praising the Lord for everything that's going on. One hour later, they couldn't tell you what went on. 
These are the ones that sit in class and are always getting ready to serve the Lord. But what goes in one ear promptly goes right through the head and out the other. When the examination comes, the Holy Spirit will not compensate for your stupidity, as some of you have probably found out already. And then there's the sponge head. Just sops up everything they can get their hands on. Right down, tape, right all over everything in sight. Go and transpose their notes. And then squeeze it out for the glory of God so that people get blessed by it. You can't be effective without your Bible. No man goes out to war without the sword. That's Scripture. And the Scriptures are the sword of the Spirit. Have to have it. So tomorrow night, bring it. And those of you that don't have one now, look on with them that does, as the saying goes. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. The question most frequently asked me in almost 30 years of ministry in this field is, what is a cult? Well, the dictionary will give you a definition as a group of people. Expanded definitions say people who are attracted by a central or dynamic personality. The word, very simply from the Latin, is cultus, and it simply means a group of people. But for the purposes of our studies of cults in the United States, I define a cult as a group of people polarized around somebody's interpretation of the Bible. They always claim to be harmonious with Christianity. And they always deny the central doctrine of the Christian faith. That Jesus Christ is nothing less than God himself in human flesh. All the cults deny this. Doesn't make any difference what vocabulary changes they make. Underneath it is the denial. If you say to a Jehovah's Witness, who is Jesus Christ? The Jehovah's Witness will say, the chief executive officer of Jehovah's theocratic kingdom the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God, Michael the Archangel. If you say to a Mormon, who is Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God. Well, is he God the Son, second person of the Trinity? Well, well, no, Jesus was created by his Father, and his Father was created by his Father, and his Father was created by his Father. This is known as the infinite regression of the gods. Jesus in Mormonism is only one God, among many gods, and you can become a god too. All you have to do is listen to the Mormon church. You say Jesus to a Unitarian, and he's an extraordinarily good man, mistakenly deified by his followers. You say Jesus to a Christian scientist, Unity School of Christianity, metaphysics, Jesus is the man and Christ is the divine idea of God, the true deity of all of us. This is not Jesus Christ. This is another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. The vocabulary may sound the same. The meanings have changed. So I urge you to remember that a cult will always sound good and look good and imitate Christianity. You will only find out what it believes when you ask the most important of all questions. What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? And if the answer is anything less than the Lord God himself in human flesh, 
you are face to face with a counterfeit of Christian faith. In Matthew chapter 24, our Lord predicted the rise of the cults. And somebody says, how can you get that out of Matthew 24? Well, open your Bible and see. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you not see all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be hurled down. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. Now this is a very important verse. Tell us. When shall these things be? What things? When will the temple be destroyed? When are these terrible, awful tribulations to come? Again, what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I think that those are fairly direct questions. Don't have any difficulty interpreting them. I don't care whether you're pre-tribulationist, mid-tribulationist, or post-tribulationist. Most of it is pure tribulation anyhow. We spend so much time arguing about whether Jesus is going to come back before the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation, that the whole world is going to hell on our doorstep while we're trying to settle the issue nobody can settle. We must stop fighting about peripheral theology and we had better get back to central theology. Because without that, we're not going to be capable of loving each other. And without that, we're not going to be capable of witnessing to the world. More paper and ink are wasted on questions of when Jesus is coming than you'd ever want to add up. What about turning most of that paper and ink into telling people he came once for their sins and get that job done first and preach with it the blessed hope. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and they shall deceive many. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled. For all these things must come to pass. The end is not yet. And he goes on listing what will take place. Kingdoms, nations fighting each other, famines, pestilence, earthquakes in peculiar places. These are only the beginning of the sorrows. And then we shall be persecuted. And people will betray one another. Now verse 11. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Again, verse 24. There shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders inasmuch that if it were possible they should deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Now look at this passage very carefully. They asked Jesus, what is the sign? The ultimate sign. It's a singular in the Greek. What is the ultimate sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus said, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. No. Only one sign does he repeat three times. That is significant. One sign. 
He doesn't say famines three times, earthquakes three times, persecutions three times. This is the key to the consummation of the ages. Many shall come in my name and say, I am Christ. Again, verse 11, false prophets, false Christ. Verse 24, false Christ, false prophets. Now, we don't have to be any theological geniuses to get that message. The sign that will tell us that we are on the brink of eternity is the proliferation of false Christs, false prophets and false teachers who will spread throughout the world what looks and sounds and acts like Christianity, but what is not Christianity. And if it is pursued, will lead down the dark corridors to eternal spiritual death. Behold, he said, I told you before. When did he tell them before? And what? Matthew chapter 7, cross-reference in your Bible. Interesting, provocative, and frightening. Verse 15, Beware of the false prophets, which come to you dressed like sheep, but inwardly, that is spiritually, they are savage wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is hewn down and hurled into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you will know them. This is a terribly important passage because it prefaces a very frightening truth. Jesus said, the false prophets and the false Christs will look like me. They will sound like me. They will say they represent me. They will appear to be sheep like you are. But they're not. And you will be able to identify them by their fruits. Ah, says a person, I know Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian scientists and people in the world of the cults who have better lives morally and ethically than a lot of Christians that I know. They can't be antichrists. They can't be false prophets because they're living such good lives. By their fruits, you will know them. Be careful. There are two kinds of fruits. There is the fruit of the life lived and there is the fruit of the doctrine taught. The Pharisees taught purity of doctrine. But Jesus said that they were whitewashed sepulchers. If you have pure doctrine and a corrupt life, you're condemned for it. And if you have a pure life and corrupt doctrine, you're condemned for it. Because salvation does not come by the efforts of purity, but by the gift of God. And so, the Jehovah's Witness who is moral and ethical and who denies that Jesus Christ is the Savior is lost. Not because I said so, Christ said so. 
And the so-called fundamentalists or charismatic evangelical who talks all the time about being born again and filled with the Holy Spirit and whose life is a living contradiction and denial of what the Scripture says comes out of born-again people is just as much producing corrupt fruit. Now, I don't want to get into an argument with anybody here about whether you can lose your salvation because we'd lose the whole evening. And we're not here to discuss Arminianism versus Calvinism anyhow. But according to Christ, it is possible to look, act, and sound like a believer and not be one. Something else comes up immediately afterward which makes it even clearer. Listen to him. Not everyone that says to me, verse 21, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils. In thy name worked miracles. And I will profess to them, I never knew you. Leave me, workers of iniquity. Notice the four things that the false prophets and the false Christs can do. They can say Lord, but they don't mean Savior. They can say that they are speaking for God and prophesy in His name. They can even use the name of Jesus to cast out demons and to work miracles. And their sin is that having used the name of Christ for their own purposes, they themselves have not believed. Is that frightening? It's taught me to be very wary of miracles. Because there are people who use the name of Jesus to perform miracles and their doctrine later turns out to be devilish. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 should be memorized by every Christian. Put everything to the test and hang on tenaciously to what's good. And what's good? What is in conformity with the Word of God? We must be subject to Scripture. And we must be willing to sacrifice everything to what God said. The girls, very charmingly before, sung about this. And yet the greatest charge leveled against charismatics is that they live by experience rather than by Scripture. That's not true. I'm a charismatic Baptist. I'm a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. According to the statistical works out now on denominations, by the year 1985, at our present rate of growth, there will be more of us than people. <laughs> A true charismatic lives by the authority of Scripture and tests all experience by it. And whatever is in accord with Scripture, you praise God for. And whatever isn't, you back away from as fast as you can because God will always speak in accordance with His Word. That's why it's important to understand the words of the Lord Jesus here. The false Christ, the false prophets will look like the sheep. 
And that's exactly how the cults look. You don't hear Jehovah's Witnesses going out in the street corner and attacking Jesus Christ. Down with Jesus Christ. Never. Down with His church. Not Him. The attacks are very seldom frontal attacks. They always sort of come out of the woodwork when you don't expect it. And you'll be talking with a cultist and they'll be talking your language. And you'll share with them about what Jesus means to you. And they'll share with you about what Hare Krishna means to them. You spend your time comparing your experiences with these people and you have no criteria for determining truth. Experience, when contrasted with experience, produces nothing but conjecture. But experience tested by Scripture produces truth because God will judge that truth in His Word. Christ warned against the false Christ and the false prophets. He did it in Matthew 7, Matthew 24, the parallel Luke chapter 21. And today, 140 years after the advent of cultism in the United States, from less than 5,000 people to almost 30 million, we are in the midst of what can only be called the rise of the cults. They have another Jesus, they have another spirit, and they have another gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, turn to it in your Bible. God tells you what to look for when you are confronted with the false Christs and the false prophets. He made a blueprint for us. We couldn't possibly miss it. Unless, of course, we don't want to accept the risk. And may I tell you something rather bluntly? Tact is not my long suit, so I'll be blunt. One of the reasons why the Christian church is on retreat today in the mission fields and also in the United States and across the world is because we have forgotten the necessity of standing up for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. The reason why we're in trouble is because we have disobeyed. Love is no substitute for fidelity. And Christ told us to be faithful. He told us to love one another. He told us to be compassionate toward the souls of men. But He told us to tell it like it is. It's one of the reasons why I gravitate toward the younger generation, not my own. When I first started writing books on the cults back in the early 1950s, for most of you, the Neolithic age, The people who criticized me most consistently were Christians. You're not being loving. You don't want to attack these people's doctrines. I mean, after all, you're not going to win them to Christ that way. That's not true. It is one of the devil's most successful lies. Soft-pedal the issues, don't rock the boat, and spew forth something which supposedly is Christian love which in reality is a way of silencing the truth. Now just to demonstrate what I mean so you won't have any doubts. Jesus Christ came into the world and John the Baptist preceded him. John the Baptist 
abstain from the world. And they said, who is this nut? And they cut his head off. Jesus Christ came eating and drinking. And they said, behold, a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber, and a friend of the publicans and the sinners. And they crucified him. John the Baptist couldn't please the world by abstaining. And Jesus Christ couldn't please it by participating. John was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus was God incarnate. Now what makes you think you're going to make it? Huh? You're going to do better than John or Jesus? You think everybody's going to love you? Love you? If you preach Jesus Christ as the Scripture tells you to, you aren't going to get love from the world. You're going to get crucifixion. Stop trying to be friendly with the world and with the forces of evil. There's only one way to deal with them. Put on the whole armor of God and move right down the valley at them. And the Scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You hear that? It nowhere says rebuke him. Be careful. A lot of people running around today say, Satan, I rebuke you. Be careful. Michael the archangel, who had a much higher rank than you do, would not bring against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Rebuking demons is one thing in the name of Jesus. Taking on the devil, you're a little outclassed. Don't fear him, but don't underestimate him. And if you're going to face him, understand that the kingdom of the cults and the occult is his private backyard. It is not sandlot baseball. It's the big leagues. And if you aren't going to go in there with a knowledge of the word, a yieldedness to the spirit, and a willingness to preach Christ whatever the cost, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to get bloodied. The highways and byways of the church today are riddled with bloodied bodies of people who went out to do battle with the forces of darkness and didn't realize that they didn't have the whole armor of God at all on. They only had a union suit. And they don't know what happened to them. I can tell you what happened. Did you ever look at that passage in Ephesians 6 where you put on the whole armor of God? Did you? Did you ever mark down the things that are there? Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, buckle of truth, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, shield of faith, sword of the Spirit, right? Every single one of those things, did you ever notice? Faces front. God never promised to protect your derriere if you turned around. Never. And that's what you see today in the Christian world. People running around pulling the flaming arrows of the devil out of their spiritual derrieres. And they can't imagine how they got hit. Let me tell you how they got hit. In the middle of the battle, they split. All right? And guess who was waiting for them to turn around? So this is conflict. The church was born in conflict. She is nurtured by controversy. She grows in the midst of conflict. And in martyrdom and persecution, she excels and multiplies. Controversy for the sake of controversy is sin. 
And controversy for the sake of truth is a divine command. And the sin of omission can send you to hell as quick as the sin of commission. Ezekiel chapter 33 says, If you will not warn the wicked man of his wicked ways and he dies in his sins, I will require his blood from you on that day. You know what that means? You keep your mouth shut when you're supposed to be out there telling people the truth. And the Lord says, I will charge you with their destiny. That is a very unpleasant thought. To omit to do what is good. Now some of you will probably get a little upset at me. Good. Think, think, think. We are fighting for our spiritual lives. And your young minds are the only future the church will have. That means you have to accept the challenges that are before you. And the world of the cults and the occult is one of your major challenges. You dare not turn your back on the rise of the cults. Second Corinthians chapter 11, meet your adversary. Here he is. I am worried about you. Second Corinthians chapter 11, that as the serpent tricked Eve, verse 3, through his subtlety, your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You notice here that Christians can have corrupted minds. It is possible for you to be corrupted by false doctrines and by false teachings. Therefore, Paul is concerned for all of us that we be aware of the nature of the enemy of our souls. Listen to him. If he that comes to you preaches another Jesus, you should circle that in your Bible, a counterfeit Jesus, whom we have not preached. If you receive another spirit, counterfeit Holy Spirit, which you have not received, or another gospel, counterfeit gospel, which you have not accepted. This is terrifying. You might well go along with it. Ah, possible to be deceived by another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Counterfeits. Again, 13. Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves to look like the apostles of Christ. This is one of the most devastating passages in all of Pauline theology. Counterfeit Jesus, counterfeit Holy Spirit, counterfeit gospel, counterfeit apostles, counterfeit ministers. You ought to circle the word transform, verse 13. And in 14, and in 15, it is not morphe. It is the changing of the outward structure. The inward is completely different, corrupt. What you are seeing here is this appearance of godliness. We get our word schematic from it. A schematic drawing. God says, this is what's really going on. You see the outside. But what's there is a counterfeit. I was talking to a friend of mine not too long ago who uh, 
prints banknotes for the federal government. And um, I said to him, don't you ever run into counterfeits? He said, oh, yes, quite frequently. I said, well, how do you protect your people from counterfeits? He said, every year we send them down to Washington, to the Department of the Treasury. I said, oh, they get down there and study the counterfeit money. He says, no, they get down there and study only good money. He said, every person that works for me handles nothing but the best, freshest printing. He said, because once you become used to the touch of real government paper, the color of the ink, the engraving, every detail of it, he said, you don't even have to look down when a counterfeit bill touches your fingers. That's how great the difference is if you are familiar with the original. I said, praise the Lord. That's a great illustration for one of my lectures. He said, how did you get that out of a counterfeit bill? I said, easy, easy. I want you to become familiar with the genuine Jesus, the genuine Holy Spirit, the genuine gospel, the genuine minister. And if you know the genuine, you will never be deceived by the counterfeit. That's your protection. I might also add there's a lot of people that don't think that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are functioning in the church today. I like to point out to them that there are counterfeit gifts all over the place. Yeah, I run into them all the time in the world of the cults and the occult. Counterfeit healings, counterfeit tongues, counterfeit miracles from people who deny the Lord Jesus as their Savior. The existence of counterfeits demonstrates absolutely the reality of an original. Satan is not in the business of counterfeiting something that doesn't exist. You want to counterfeit a $10 bill, you will not print it on chartreuse paper with Donald Duck's picture in the middle. You will come as close as you can to the genuine article. So does the devil. Now here one other important factor you should note. 2 Corinthians 11 says, that there is a transformation that takes place. They are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves so that they look like apostles of Christ. No marvel, Satan himself is transformed so that he looks like an angel of light. He is not an angel of light. Notice that. He only looks like one. And verse 15 you ought to memorize. It is no great thing if Satan's ministers also be transformed so that they look like the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be in accordance with their works. All right, here's your picture. A vast empire supervised by the prince of darkness. The god of this age is worshipped by them without their even knowing it. They serve him, carry out his wishes, 
And the supreme counterfeit is to look like us, to act like us, to sound like us, so that they will confuse a dying world who will say, what's the difference? They all sound the same. No. And that's our task, to risk unpopularity, to accept the occupational hazards of being vilified, cursed, or whatever else comes with it, just so long as you tell the truth. Just so long as people see the real Jesus Christ, the real Holy Spirit, and the real gospel. One of my tapes, I have an illustration. I've never improved on it, so I'll use it again. In Matthew chapter 7, I often wondered in my early days why God called the church sheep. Why didn't he say, feed my pussycats? Why didn't he say, tend my dolphins? Why did he call us sheep? Always puzzled me. I found out when I remembered that when I used to escape the ghetto where I was born in Brooklyn and go up into the country to find out what trees were like and grass, I had a job in the summertime back in the 1930s when I was just a broth of a boy. And there I would tend a little flock of sheep with a dog. And I always knew when there was trouble. You watch the dog, not the sheep. The dog. The dog goes, the ears go up, the tail sticks out, and you know something is going to happen. Automatically, you know something's going to happen. All you do is bite your fingernails for when. And the big old ram will stick his head up in that flock. When you hear that, run. Do not walk. Run. Because it's only a matter of seconds before the whole flock stops. All turn in the direction of the ram. And off they go. And it's over hill, over dale, you will hit that dusty trail chasing those sheep. I know. I did it. I wasn't a Christian in those days. And where I spat, the grass will never grow green again. Finally, you get out in the back of the acreage and wound up in the barbed wires your little flock. Did you ever pull sheep on a hot summer day out of barbed wire that was rusty? Oh, it's real fun. Scratches, cuts, and all the time you're trying to pull them out, they're stepping on your feet. And it's an insult to try and get them out of the barbed wire. Finally get them all out and send them on their way and you finally pull the old ram out and give him a little jolt in the rear and he runs off. He looks up at you with these big soulful sheep eyes. So what has this got to do with sheep in the church? Easy. All through history we've been the sheep. And all through history the rams have stuck their heads up. Jehovah's Witnesses, and off they went after them. Mormonism, and off they went after them. The sheep just went everywhere after what looked like sheep, but weren't. 
You know why God called the church sheep? They're the stupidest animal in creation. That's true. I know, I've worked with them intimately. You can teach them the same thing 100 times, and they will still end up in a barbar. Now, cows are stupid, and horses are absolutely idiotic, but sheep, believe me, totally unpredictable. The only thing you can predict about sheep is they won't do what you think they'll do. That you can predict. That's exactly how it is in the church. We're always running after the wrong rams. We're always listening to another voice. We're always following something else. The other Jesus, the other spirit, the other gospel. 78% of the people that are in the cults today came out of the church. Did you know that? That's right. Former Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Pentecostals, name it. They're in the cults today because their minds were corrupted from the simplicity that was in Christ. You must risk being hated, abused, and persecuted if you are to effectively communicate. A few years ago, I happened to make the acquaintance of a very nice guy because of my interest in the sport of boxing. And his name was Rocky Marciano. He was the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world and died that way. We became friends, uh, having met in an airplane terminal, and started talking about boxing. And we got so interested in the discussion that he almost missed his sports lecture that night, and I almost missed my connection for my flight to preach in Grand Rapids. But he said, why don't you come down to my house in Florida? I love to talk the history of boxing with you. I said, great. So I went down for a weekend, witness to him. And while we were talking, I got one of the greatest illustrations in the world about the Christian life, a pass it on to you. It came from Rocky Marciano, and he didn't even know he gave it to you till I told him. I said, you know something bothered me, Rocky? I said, when you fought, I said, every time you get out there to fight, you went after the guy like you were killing snakes. And you get hit three, four, five times to one. I said, I could never figure out why you took so much punishment. You didn't have to. He smiled. He said, you see my eyes, nose, ears? I said, yeah. He says, all plastic surgery. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, uh, that's what that cost me. I had to be redone after I got finished fighting. He said, but I was a poor, ignorant Italian boy on the shoe assembly line in a Brockton shoe factory in Massachusetts. And I got a chance one night to fight for 10 bucks. He said, I hit the guy, and they took five minutes to wake him up. And somebody said, hey, you could make a living at that. And I said, hey, anything is better than the shoe factory. So I turned professional. He said, the reason I took all the punishment was because my arms are too short. So he said, I'll show you. So he stood up and squared off. Fortunately, that's as far as it went. And he said, all right, now. Put out your left hand if you're going to jab me. So I did. And he said, now I'm going to try and hit you. And he swung. And his arm made an arc five inches under my chest. He said, if you could hit as hard as I could hit, 
you'd murder me because you're too big and got too much of a reach and I couldn't get near you. He said, everybody I fought was bigger than I was and built like the side of a house and they all had a longer reach. I had to put my face in the meat grinder four and five times because I knew if I could get one clean shot at their jaw, they were gone. I said, now I get the message. Fantastic sermon illustration. He said, what? He said, a sermon out of that? I said, yeah. What is it? I said, this. You looked at the guy opposite you in the corner and said, I am going to go out there and I'm going to win because he wants to put me back on the shoe line. Right? He said, yeah. That was inspiration for me. I said, good. And I said, you went out there and you got your head punched off because you knew that if you got one chance, you win. Right. I said, that's the way we are. We're in the world outclassed, outmaneuvered, outgunned most of the time, and unfortunately outthought. We have the short arm. We don't reach. The children of this generation are wiser in their generation than the children of light. But God has given to us the ultimate victory. All you need is that one clean opportunity. And every advantage the devil has in this world disappears. Crumbles in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and the authority of Holy Scripture. And you get in there and you will win. All the scars you get in the meantime are occupational hazards. You learn to take it because it's for the glory of God. Finally, the cults are not only growing, but they are challenging us. They are reaching out and being successful imitating us. The Mormon church the largest single cult in the world. A membership of four million. Assets in excess of 20 billions of dollars. We'll have on the mission field 47,000 full-time missionaries within the next two years. The combined missionary force of the entire Christian church is 105,000. That's one cult. The Jehovah's Witnesses print and distribute more literature in six months than all the presses of our denominations combined for the purpose of evangelism. That's not something small. That's something big. Edgar Cayce's cult, Virginia Beach, Virginia, has more books and more paperback racks than any religion in the country. Edgar Casey on prophecy, Edgar Casey on reincarnation, Edgar Casey the sleeping prophet, the cures of Edgar Casey, and don't you think he didn't have them? Casey had books full of documented healings of people who did what he told them to do when he was asleep. And when the demon that controlled him spoke, Casey's little black diaries 
of healings cannot be challenged. So as Christians, we must be aware of the rise of the cults. We must be aware of the challenge to you and me. We must remember that cultists make fantastic Christians. And if you come to Christ out of a cult, the chances are you're going to be a vibrant power for God. Beware of the other Jesus, the other spirit, and the other gospel. Don't be put down by people who tell you that you're unloving because you tell the truth. Jesus Christ was incarnate love. No one was ever as loving as Jesus. Yet when Christ encountered false doctrines and false teachers, Jesus, incarnate love, said, You generation of slimy snakes, who warned you to flee from the damnation of hell? You will seek for me. You will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. You will die in your sins. The counterfeits are here, and so is the Spirit. And it is His power that will give you the courage and the strength and the ultimate victory. If you want to be a powerful witness against unbelief, seek God the Holy Spirit and seek His guidance and strengthening. I don't care whether you call it in due with power, fill, baptize. Whatever synonym you care to use, we need every possible advantage that we can have from the Spirit of God. And we are told in 1 Corinthians 14 to seek that we might excel. The time for argument about sprinkle them, pour them, immerse them, or give them wine, grape juice, or Coca-Cola at the communion service is over. We are now approaching the consummation of time. The ultimate sign is here. And Jesus Christ is summoning us to love each other more than our differences. And to leave the things which are behind and to dare to press forward toward those things which are ahead of us. Looking unto Jesus, author and finisher of faith. Episcopalians gave me my closing line. I have never regretted it and always loved it. It's an old Episcopal hymn. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and strength and mind to serve the King of Kings. Rise up, O men of God, the church for you doth wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church and obey him for obedience is better than sacrifice. Our Father, Almighty God, in these moments of silence, we prostrate ourselves in thy presence to worship and to praise and to adore thee, King of kings and Lord of lords, 
who alone hath immortality, dwelling in that light which no man hath seen nor can see, that no man can approach unto. O oh, gracious and loving Father, stir within us the response. Draw from us our very best. Help us to rise to the challenge which faces us. Strengthen us with all might in accordance with thy glorious power. Shake us from our apathy and our lethargy and from all of the hypnotic effects of this dry and parched age of human existence and irrigate our souls afresh with the rivers of living water that they may bubble forth to everlasting life. O Divine Spirit, who has been the tenant of our temple and the one who has promised never to leave us to the consummation of the ages, quicken us that we may see and obey Thee. Hear us, our Father, in that name which is above every name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Son of God, Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening today as we explore just where are we going. Our prayer is that you have been encouraged and strengthened and, if necessary, challenged in your daily journey through life. Jesus is coming. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun. The choice is yours. You can email us with questions and comments at feedback at spiritwatch.org. And if you need urgent personal spiritual help, email us at help at spiritwatch.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Please follow our podcasting at our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. This podcast is a production of Spirit Watch Ministries, taking heed that no man deceives you.